I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to History Rage, the podcast all about members of the historical community fixing bayonets and making a gallant last stand against historical misinformation. If there's a podcast that lets our learned academics fight across a tennis court to defeat the myth, this is the one. I am public historian Paul Bavel, and I'm here with my ever-loyal co-host and solid ally, Kyle Glover. Hello. And last week, we took you on a clandestine journey into occupied France. And this week, we're staying with the Second World War, but taking our second trip over to the Far East Theatre of War. To guide us through the jungles and mangrove swamps of history, we are joined by writer, historian, research fellow at the University of Oxford, and author of A War of Empires, Dr. Robert Lyman. Rob, welcome to History Rage. I'm delighted to be here to get angry with you and to fight those battles over the tennis court. So I actually got you here after I read War of Empires, and rare for me, but I just thought, what the hell? Why not just ask and see (laughs) Phil turn up? And and lo and behold, you're here. Uh, So... So really, for the benefit of our other listener, and uh, somewhat of myself as well, you tell us a bit about your career, your background, and how you ended up where you are? Sure. Well, when I was a young man, I had absolutely no idea I'd end up where I am now 40 years later. I joined the army at 18, went straight to uh, Sandhurst, and I uh, spent 20 years in the army. I was commissioned into the light infantry a long, long time ago in 1982, even before the Falklands War. And I loved my time in the army, but uh, all good things come to an end. And I left in 2000, just, yes, 2000, and I went into business. And I've been Mm -hmm. doing that ever since. But during my army career, I started writing. And I had a few articles published, one in a book on leadership uh, edited by Gary Sheffield. So I've always been very interested in military history, in military theory, in strategy, in command. Mm -hmm. And uh, I then wrote something on the war in Bosnia. I'm a bit of a theoretical realist when it comes to international relations. And I then, in the army, started working on what became my PhD, which was a, a military biography of Field Marshal Bill Slim. And that was published in 2004 as Slim Master of War. Uh, in, in, in that research for my PhD, which took a very long time, I amassed a huge amount of material. And the truth is, I I had so much material, I had about three books worth. So I then was able to um, write and publish very shortly after that a book on the war in um, North Africa in the Middle East in 1941, a really critical turning point for Britain in that it prevented the Germans from gaining any ascendancy in the Middle and Near East, um, Iraq, Lebanon and Iran. Uh, and Syria, of course, and that was called First Victory. I've always regretted the title of the book, but I, I loved writing it, and it was it was great fun. And um, and I had enough material then to do a study of command, which was published as the Generals a couple of years later, yeah. where I looked at seven commanders in the Far East: one American, three Japanese, and three 
British, I think the number is. And I, it was a fascinating experience because I was able to start with one of my all-time favorite commanders. If you're allowed to have an enemy commander who's your favorite, General Yamashita, who captured malaria in Singapore, really quite remarkable man. Mm-hmm. Uh, hanged for war crimes after the war, a command responsibility. He wasn't directly involved, but he didn't prevent it. A bit unfair, really, because I think actually he was a, quite a humane man and uh, and a disciplinarian, but not a, a a war criminal. But there we are. That's um, Victor's Justice. Um, and f- from then on, with three books under my belt, I really couldn't stop. And I, I tried very hard after that, actually, to, to get away from the Far East. I'd done quite <laughs> a few trips to India and Burma. And um, I started trying to study the Second World War, uh, subjects around the Second World War in Europe. I was very, very interested in small raids, commander-type operations, and I had a lot of fun writing Operation Suicide, which is the story of the Cockershaw Heroes in about 2010-11, and then uh, the story of the San Jose Raid very shortly after that. Um, Part of that, you know, the problem with writing is that if you, all writers do a lot of research, and you end up, uh, if any of the other writers are like me, uh, you, they end up in rabbit warrens. And I end oh, up yes. in a rabbit warren searching. Well, I was studying um, the uh, MI9. This is a subject that Helen Fry's made her own. But I was studying MI9 in the archives in about 2008 and nine, And I came across some extraordinary stories about Amiens prison. So that led me to the Amiens prison raid in about 2014. And I yep. traveled to New Zealand to interview some of the, the surviving crew members and um and that was a, a became a voyage of discovery because actually i spent quite a bit of time in france with the archives of uh, a man called gilbert renault in Caen, and uh, and it really b- d- developed quite a, a detailed understanding of how the french resistance or as i call it the resistance in france there wasn't one yeah. single organization <laughs> operated and um and anyway then i was forced back to burma uh people have tried to get me back to study Burma and India over the years. Well, you do it well. Well, that's very kind. And I um, I, I absolutely loved it. I, I, I wrote a book um, where I was very, very keen to write a book. It's, it's a horrible title. The title was given to me, but it's called Japan's Last Bid for Victory. It's the story of the Japanese invasion of India in 1944. And I, I wanted then to sit back and say, what don't we know about the Japanese invasion of India? Why, why or was it significant? And if so, why? And um, I tried to resurrect or create some, develop some stories from the Japanese invasion of India that had not yet been known. And I, I was very pleased with that book because I was able to tell the Naga story for the first time. Um, very significant group of uh, indigenous Indians in the in the hills of Assam who supported Britain and its fight against the Japanese. And I was able to track operations like the 23rd Long Range Penetration Brigade, very successful Chindit Brigade in support of the, the fighting around Kahima. And that, that of course, has meant lots and lots of trips to India, lots of trips to Burma, and lots of lots and lots of interviewing uh, veterans over the years as well, which has been, a, yeah. a, a, been really very, very special. And um, there are very few of them left now. And so we, we are simply left with those who um, left their recorded memories or their written memories. You know, there are there are only a handful, for instance, of Kahima yeah. veterans left. They're all, in, you know, at or about a hundred years old, and we'll be meeting in Kahima in uh, York rather again in July for the annual Kahima memorial service. But you know, it's um, it's very sad to see the passing of the veterans. But you know, I'm, I was very privileged over about twenty years to interview many of them, and particularly yeah. the Naga veterans, which was always very exciting uh, for me as well. There, that is what you're very much proud of. Yes. What we're going to talk about now is what very much drives you up the wall. <laughs> and, and this is what History Rage is all about. So to uh, to start this off, Rob, if you were please, with as much rage and emotion as you feel <laughs> it's worth. Well, look, I'm a very, very calm Englishman. And so this rage, I thought, was going to be very, very relaxed. And, you know, it's a sort of Sunday afternoon anger at what you might see on television. But actually, it does make me furious. It makes my blood boil. And this is the fact that, you know, we we all as as uh, consumers of history have consumed and, and have absorbed lots of falsehoods, actually, over the years and myths, stories that you know, we, we are we are products of our history. We're products of what we've been told and our schooling and what mm-hmm. we've read and the 
the Commando comics in particular that we read as youngsters, if, oh, if, yeah. you're, if you're anything like me. And the thing that makes me absolutely furious is the erasing from history of really, really important competence in the fighting. So the thing that really annoys me most of all is in the story of the war in the Far East, the um, story of the Indian Army, the Indian Navy and the Indian Air Force, and also of the indigenous tribes in Burma and India who fought against the Japanese has been completely forgotten. And it's really, Mm. really irritating. And uh, the, the real problem with my anger is that I don't want to say that those people who forget are doing it deliberately because the people who forget tend to be um, members of groups and tribes in the UK who support the Burma Star Association, what was the Burma Star Association's another Burma Star Memorial Fund, and um, who have this idea that the 14th Army was entirely British and they all got the Burma Star, they were all entirely forgotten, they went away to India in 1942 and 43, they fought the Japs single-handedly and they defeated the Japs and they came back to glory in, in 1945. You know, that story is only partially true. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the, the thing that people, most people forget, and the way to describe this is to give some statistics. So the operational land forces in Southeast Asia Command, to keep it really simple, in 1945, which is effectively Slim's 14th Army, and General Philip Christensen's 15 Corps, those two elements, 606,000 men, 87% of that 606,000 were Indian soldiers. They weren't. Wow. 87%. 3% were Africans, and the remaining about 10% were Brits. The British deployed two formal divisions in the fighting uh, order of battle in Burma, the 2nd British Division and the 36th uh, Division. And they fought bravely, they fought well. But the problem is in in, in only in, in selecting them or emphasising them, we have excluded the vast majority of other combatants in the 14th Army. That's the first part of my anger. The first part of the anger is our selective memory of those who fought. The other part of my anger, actually, Paul, is about some of the myths that have been developed or created over time. And one of the most annoying myths is the myth of Wingate and his chindits. Now, I've got to preface this. This is why. At last, somebody said it. Well, well, (laughs) you have to be, I have to be very sensitive because actually. I am not, and I never have, been critical of the enormous sacrifices the Chindits underwent. And I have had lots of wonderful Chindit friends. And David Rooney was a very, I disagreed with him fundamentally. David Rooney died in 2016, age 92. But he and I were great mates and we spent a lot of time together. He bequeathed his library to me when he died. He bequeathed all his notes to me. I've got boxes of his notes. So he was a very fine historian, but he got the Chindits wrong. Um, And the question that I now uh, ask of people is, okay, the way in which we evaluate the Chindits is to ask the question, what did they achieve strategically? Yeah. And if by strategically we we mean, you know, what was the 14th Army? What were the Allies trying to achieve in Burma? And to what extent did the Chindits actually contribute to the the achievement of those uh, outputs or those outcomes? It's the only way we can really, really measure what the Chindits achieved. And frankly, the Chindits achieved very, very little. For the sacrifices they they undertook, they achieved very little strategically. So I would argue that actually, if you took the Chindits out of the operation, uh, the, the, the balance of power in Burma would not have changed one bit. Uh, the Chindits suffered quite considerable casualties. Uh, not just from the fighting, but from exhaustion and so on. Yeah. Not you know, in, in both of the Chindit operations, Longcloth and Thursday, and actually the the Japanese they had very little effect on the Japanese. Now that that itself is a bit of a pain for me, but it's not the reason why I get angry. The reason why I get angry is actually there were two or three other really significant st- strategic long-range penetration operations or special force operations. One was long-range penetration, the other was special force operations in Burma mm-hmm. that did make a dramatic impact on the strategy of the campaign. And yet no one knows anything about them. And they don't know anything about them because of the noise given to the Wingate story. 
Uh, and those two were, the first one was the operation of Special Operations Executive, SOE, uh, known in the Far East as Force 136. Yep. Uh, in March and April 1945, in delaying and preventing the Japanese from reinforcing the town of Tungu on the Satang, Tang River, actually. Um, and by uh, preventing the Japanese from getting to Tungu, it allowed the vanguard of Slim's 14th Army to get there first. Now, why is that important? It's incredibly important because if Slim wasn't able to get to Tungu, he wouldn't then have been able to um, force the Japanese out of Rangoon, which is what happened. Yeah. And if he couldn't force the Japanese out of Rangoon, the amphibious assault against Rangoon, which is Operation Dracula, uh, would have been opposed. We would have an, an opposed landing in Rangoon with all the bloodshed and horror that that would have entailed. So yeah. getting to Tungu is really critical. And it was Force 136, you know, several hundred British, Indian and Burmese operators being parachuted into the Karen Hills, recruiting 12 to 13,000 Karen soldiers, irregulars, training them, giving them ammunition and weapons, and using them to ambush and fight the Japanese, which was staggering. In fact, in April 1945, the Kareni irregulars killed more Japanese than the 14th Army. I think we might have to get you on again <laughs> for for like a chinded SOE rage because what came up uh, last week when we interviewed Kate Vigers is that I could see Kyle was just twitching of like SOE go other places than France. Yes, oh, <laughs> all, absolutely. All the way through it. Now, you mentioned kind of earlier on that like 87% of the British army in Burma is actually the Indian army. Yeah. Now, How's the Indian Army made up at this time? Is it a separate entity from the British Army? Is it under British command? It's a separate entity. And that's another that's another rage item for me. <laughs> um, there is so much. And look, I fell into the strap when I was a young researcher. And I would talk about I would talk about the British Indian Army. But actually, there's no such thing as the British Indian Army. The Indian Army was the legally constituted army of the government of India. And it's really important for us to understand that. Immediately after the mutiny in 1857-58, uh, when John Company, so the East India Company, was collapsed and um, it was put into administration effectively, and the Crown, the British Crown, took over its responsibilities and created Imperial India. That it didn't start. The British Empire in India didn't start until 1858, and it set up the, in, in the Indian government, which people called the Raj. No one at the time called it the Raj. It's, it's, it's a modern modern name. And they established the Indian Army. Now, in order to be able to, the, the Indian Army developed after that. And in order to be able to populate it with uh, officers, uh, officers were, first of all, seconded from the British Army. But as time went by, they were recruited directly from Santos yeah. and Woolwich, by the way. And in time, uh, as Indianization began, it took quite a long time, sadly, for Indianization to be developed because it was one of the big Another rage issue for me, it took too long for Indianization to to, to um, be developed in India. What this meant was that young British officers would have a choice of being commissioned into the Indian Army or the mm -hmm. British Army. And it, it was it was one thing or the other. You you weren't there was very little secondment actually from the Indian Army. It did happen on, on occasions, but it was primarily about being commissioned into one army or the other. And once you were commissioned into one army or the other, that was it. You know, you if you're commissioned into the Indian Indian Army your career would be with the Indian Army. Your loyalty was, was to your Indian regiment and to India. And the role of the Indian Army was to defend India. That's the purpose of the Indian Army. Yeah, it's the purpose um, of every army, isn't it? It's the purpose of every army. The first duty of any government is to protect its citizens. And the, the role of the army was to uh, protect India. And, you know, unfortunately, there is there has developed this idea that the Indian Army was simply a mercenary British army a mercenary army in India, which was used by the British to um, fight its colonial wars. There, there is a sense here, so let's make it really clear, the two armies were entirely separate, but there needed to be a degree of interoperability because they would often work together. Yeah. Um, so uh, they they had a slightly different rank structure, uh, but they used largely the same equipment. A lot of the equipment used in the Indian Army was actually manufactured in India, and um, but you know they shared the same caliber weapons and so on. But, you know, whatever happened in India tended to lag a little bit behind what happened in the British Army. But in 1938, 
the decision was made by the Indian government to create a deployable division in the Indian Army, the the 4th Indian Division, that Mm -hmm. could operate as part of a British formation because it could hear the war drums being beaten and they could see the time when the Indian Army would need to deploy with British formations uh, in parts of the world where they'd need to operate together and it made sense to to, to, um, have the same structures and, and so on. And that yeah. actually worked very well. And the 4th Indian Division fought all the way through North Africa and into Italy, where they did fabulously well. You know, a, a, an amazing division, uh, which has largely been forgotten in the annals of history. So what are some of the achievements of the Indian Army, these millions of Indian soldiers who fought in the war, but often get overlooked? Well, I mean, the first thing is, I'll, I'll just say, you know, what it was. So in 1939, the Indian Army comprised of just short of 200,000 men. Mm-hmm. And for the for the most part, they were a gendarmerie responsible for protecting India. There were internal threats to the security of India. And there were uh, one or two external threats. The primary external threat was in the northwest frontier uh, against um, a supposed Russian advance through Afghanistan. I mean, it was really it was taken really quite seriously, and it was um, an enormous amount of consideration given to opposing a Russian advance through the northwest frontier and and to um, manage the political situation in north northwest frontier and stabilize it. But by 1945, the Indian Army. Uh, an all-volunteer army, by the way, had grown to mm. just over two million men. During the course of the war, two and a half million uh, men and women had joined the Indian Army, which is an extraordinary number. I think the, um, the way to describe this is to say that in 1942, the Indian Army and the British Army didn't have the best showing in Malaya, Singapore and in Burma. And they were shown up for, uh, by the Japanese principally because the Japanese had prepared very well for the war and they knew what they were fighting against and the the British and the Indian formations didn't. They weren't expecting to have to fight the Japanese and even if they did know they were going to fight the Japanese, they weren't prepared for it. So there was very yeah. little force planning and the equipment was poor. And you know, everything everything that you what you would expect of a uh, of an of an army fighting going to war just didn't exist in nineteen forty two in Malaya, Singapore and, and Burma. The extraordinary thing was that through 1943, um, by the start of early 1944, that dire situation had changed dramatically. And we now had an army in early 1944 that yeah. could not only take on the Japanese on equal terms, but beat them decisively. So there, there's that, the extraordinary story, if I can just encapsulate it all in a nutshell, of the Far East is a story of defeat into victory for the Allies, for the British and the Indians, um, and a story of victory into defeat for the Japanese, because the the Japanese amazingly sat on their laurels in 1942 after their successful invasion. And my own argument is that, uh, which I don't develop fully in the book, because I ran out of space and it was uh, there was a chapter that's been was cut out. But the basic argument is that um, 1941 was the Japanese lash out. It was the end of their empire, not the start of the empire. Um, and they were frankly exhausted by what they achieved. They sat on their laurels through most of 1943. They didn't reinforce success. And by the time they were engaged again in 1944, um, they started fighting mm-hmm. for the Allies and uh, using the same tactics that, that they deployed in the same approach to war fighting that they deployed in 1944. And they were smashed decisively. And so at the end of 1945, the real triumph, the, the first, there were two triumphs for the Indian Army. Kyle, the first was in Falkahima in 1944, where they decisively smashed the Japanese invasion of India. And um, the second was actually Mandalay Mactila in 1945, and then the charge to Rangoon. So in 1945, let me just paint a picture. We had um, two uh, corps in the 14th Army fighting in, um, in Burma, so six divisions. One of those corps was armoured, fully equipped with Sherman tanks, um, uh, with mobile artillery mobile howitzers, 105-millimeter American howitzers, yeah. and cab ranks of fighter ground attack aircraft, hurry bombers and Volte vengeances in the sky above them, and uh, all connected by radio, able to operate in a sophisticated maneuver way against the Japanese. Uh, and I've, I firmly believe that if you took that armored corps 
uh, out of Frank Mosevi's armoured corps out of Burma and stuck it into northwest Europe and Normandy, for instance, it would have made a very good showing of itself. And that, that's the extent of the mm -hmm. enormous mountain the Indian Army climbed in 1943. It transformed itself under British officers, under some quite extraordinary men led by Bill Slim, not exclusively Bill Slim, but the Indian Army in India, under India command was led by General uh, Sir Claude Auchinleck as the commander-in-chief, quite a remarkable man and responsible for mobilising India for war and led effectively by Bill Slim's 14th Army. And that, that combination was remarkable. It's one of the most remarkable turnarounds in history. And it's not as though Slim deployed his troops in Burma uh, on a manpower basis. You have this idea, just to explain, you have a very strong sense in Eastern Europe that the Russians fought a war of manpower, not a war of firepower. They had lots of men. You know, they, they lost 12 million fighting men in the Second World War because they threw... Uh, men at the battle. Whereas Slim in Burma didn't do that. He allowed the Japanese to throw uh, men into battle. Mm -hmm. He threw technology, armour, artillery, and smart fighting. And it was, it was dramatically successful. And that was the Indian Army. And I have this view that actually, when you look at the way in which the Indian state was being built up and created ready for independence, you know, having a strong and successful army, having a successful army is an incredibly important part of yeah. the structure of your state and, and your sense of worth and your sense of who you are and what you can achieve. And and this was this victory in 1945 at India was incredibly important um, for India's sense of itself. And it's very interesting to look at the Indian army now. It's almost a mirror image of what was bequeathed to it in 1947. And that was that in 1947, that was built very firmly on what had achieved in Burma in 1945, a remarkable army, very large, effective, powerful, vibrant fighting force that um, didn't transform itself because of the British. It didn't transform itself because it was fighting for Britain. It transformed yeah. itself because actually it recognized the threat to India for Japan. And that's um, that's a really interesting point here. This is that... Um, the people who were recruited into the Indian Army and uh, did so voluntarily didn't didn't do so because they wanted to support Britain. Yeah, and there's another misnomer here. This is a really good point because you know Indians joined the army for lots and lots of reasons, but we mustn't uh, ignore the reality that many of them joined the army uh, because they recognised the threat that Japan posed. And I interviewed many years ago a fantastic. Um, uh, Indian veteran. He's now passed away. He was a hurricane pilot. In fact, he was uh, 18 when he joined in 1943. And I sort of asked him this rather naive question about why he joined the Indian Air Force. And he, and, and I, he looked at me as though I had two heads. And uh, he said, Rob, I could read the newspapers. I knew what the Japanese were doing mm -hmm. in China. We, all, we were all terrified of the Japanese. We were terrified of um, what they might do. We all knew of net. And so we all had agency. We had the choice. We, I didn't give the British a second thought. I didn't even know much about them. But I joined the Indian Air Force because I was concerned about Japan. And that's something that we have lost over the years. We've, got a lot, we've lost a sense of how important these issues were to young men and women in, yeah. in India at the time. Those certainly who were educated or had the opportunity of, uh, of joining up. And, um, and, and, you know, it's very easy for us to place a template on, on history and say, well, it's because they, you know, they, they did it for these reasons. They were hungry or there was imperial coercion and things like this that really rob individuals in their past of their own agency. And that's, a, that's, a, that's another real concern that I have. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And it's an interesting point there, because and you may have answered some of this already. Uh, but when you talk about the, the Indians are there, they're, they're joining up because they're joining up there to fight for India. Britain's not really the concern, as you, as you say. Yeah. Now, come the start of the war, we're 20 years on from the Amritsar massacre. Yeah. Um, I've, you know, I read, read The Patient yeah. Assassin by Anita Anand, absolutely yeah. phenomenal book. Yeah. You mentioned that they're under British officers and, you, you know, and the, it is primarily a British war in India, if I'm reading that right even though they're fighting for their own country. It's, it's under British direction, if I'm It's correct. under British direction. There's, there's no yeah. doubt about that. So, so, what, so the question is, why, why do the Indians join in such large numbers? Yeah. Well, yeah, Indian independence is no closer in 1939, is it? Well, it is. Right. It, it is. It is. I think that's the point. Indian independence is, become, is coming very much closer, very, very quickly. So the late 1920s, from 1927 onwards, 1928, independence is going to happen. The big argument in India and in Westminster, of course, is the the way in which independence will be constituted. And there were many uh, in the UK who wanted India to have dominion status like Canada, South Africa, New Zealand and Australia for a period of time. And we need to remember also that there was an enormous amount. There wasn't one single view. This is also an ahistoricism, a modern ahistoricism, which you do find a lot in India, which is that there wasn't a single view in India about how independence should work its way out. And there were two big groups of, uh, of Indians who disagreed fundamentally with each other. The first was uh, a Hindu-dominated Congress. Now, Congress wasn't Hindu, but there are a large number of Hindus represented in Congress. And there were groups within Congress who wanted different things. But, we, of course, we had a large Muslim minority who did not want to end up in a united India under a Hindu-dominated yeah. Congress uh, regime. And so for, for most of the 1930s, there was this big divide between what the Muslims wanted and what the, um, what the Hindus wanted in Congress. And, and there was never going to be unity about it. I mean, that's the great tragedy, ultimately, of partition and the creation of two separate, actually three separate states, Pakistan, India, and, and, and subsequently Bangladesh. But the point of the, the fact, you know, let's go back to Amritsar. Uh, Amritsar was a disaster for Britain. It was um, a disaster initiated by General Reginald Dyer, who should not have done what he did. It was it was terrible. You know, you can't can't criticize it enough. Yeah. Uh, but I think it was seen for what it was by many Indians. It was a it was a, an overreaction to a perennial problem, which was civil disturbance. And one of the ways that Indians uh, expressed their political voice because they didn't have the vote in the same way that we might have had in the UK. Well, actually, in the UK, we didn't have full franchise until 1927. We forget that as well. Yeah. Um, one of the ways in which um, the people voted in in, um, in India was uh, on the streets. And Dyer overreacted and you know, the massacre was outrageous, but I think most people were able to contextualize it. I mean, the best book on Amritsar, the most depoliticized book on Amritsar, actually is by Nick Lloyd. It's a very, very good analysis of what happened. And he makes that he makes this point that, you know, this wasn't British policy. I mean, Reginald Dyer was a bit of an idiot. He didn't kill, he didn't order the men to shoot because he didn't like Indians or he was racist. He would have done the same thing if they were Irish or British. And if, if he was on the streets of Liverpool, he would have done the same thing. That's yeah. that's the point that most people miss 
when they politicize Amritsar. And I think the point is that reprehensible though it was, it you know most Indians were able to recognize that you know this was a a, a terrible blip, but it didn't change the view about what India was ultimately going to become. I mean, my view, you know, really developed in the early 2000s when I was interviewing um, Indian veterans, and they gave a sense of their own personal agency about the country they wanted. They weren't yeah. uh, angry with Britain, but they recognised that very shortly they would uh, be masters of their own destiny, and they wanted to play a role in designing that future. And that's a sense that we we've also lost, I'm afraid. Um, certainly in Britain, we've lost it. Post-colonial politics is deeply political. And um, and it imposes a template on individuals in history that I don't think is entirely reflective of who they were. But it's the same in India, actually. Mm. There's an extreme in, uh, Hindu franchise in, in India that argues that the Indian army was basically a tool of the empire and um, the Second World War was a colonial war that wasn't undertaken because Indians wanted to fight it. The, the evidence against that is incredibly strong. Um, not least of all, the two and a half million men and women who joined voluntarily to fight. Yeah, yeah. Watch what people do. Watch what people do and listen to what people say and read newspapers from the time. That's it's, that's really important. And I've been doing that for years and years and years. And you don't get a sense that there's India good, Britain bad. It's, it's a sense of how well has India been governed by mm-hmm. both Britons and Indians and what are the priorities for India? And in fact, for most most British political governance in India, I would argue, was actually remarkably benign and very pro-Indian. There are very few, you could name them on a couple of fingers of one hand, the numbers of viceroys who uh, were opposed yeah. to Indian independence. And, you know, so we, we need to recognise these realities and recognise also that there's an entire journey being undertaken. Most people, when they criticise British policy to India, actually are criticising Churchill's view of India, not British policy towards India, which, of course, was reflected or represented by the British government in the 1920s and 1930s, all of whom were committed, actually, to independence for India. The Second World War accelerated all of that. And um, the really exciting thing that I, um, I sort of, developed in my book and the exciting thing for me was this question look if britain if britain's control of india was such a failure why was it that even after singapore malaya and singapore in 1942 did millions of indians flock to join the indian army to fight the japanese and they weren't joining the indian army to fight the germans because that had stopped that was the fourth mm-hmm. division in north uh, in north, um, north africa they were joining the indian army to fight the japanese that's an extraordinary question and if if the if indians felt that actually the empire was over the raj was about to collapse and um they they had the option of inviting the japanese in they didn't they absolutely fought tooth and nail against the japanese and that's what a lot of people today yeah perhaps the politicised wing of our community don't really understand why is it that Indians fought? They fought not because they were coerced to do so. They fought on the whole because they didn't want uh, a Japanese polity in India. And it's as simple as that. Now, you mentioned there then um, Churchill's attitude towards the Indians, which segues us beautifully, and it's almost like you're setting this up. Genius! Now, we've had a previous guest in season one that referenced Churchill's attitude towards the Indians. How did the British army and British soldiers that shared the battlefield with Indian soldiers view them? Well, OK, the, the point about Churchill, I just need to start very quickly with Churchill. Churchill had a very strange attitude to the Indian army that was clearly um, a product of his time as a young officer in the northwest frontier in the battles in the 1890s. And I... The best book on um, Churchill and India has yet to be published. It's coming out soon, published by Walter Reed. And I think it's just called Churchill India. And Churchill had a very, very strange attitude to India, which wasn't racist. You know, he, he Churchill wasn't a racist. Churchill um, was, was a very um, compelling politician in, in many ways. But he, um, he didn't think that India had it in itself the ability to govern itself fully. And 
clearly he's wrong in that respect. He, he picked up things when he was a young officer that stayed with him um, thereafter and tarnished his view of what Indians were capable of doing. So if you were to suggest to Churchill in 1942 that actually the Indian army would rise from the ashes of defeat uh, in a year and a half and completely trounce the Japanese army in Asia, he wouldn't have believed you because he didn't believe it was possible. So that's the problem. He didn't believe that yeah. India had the ability to do the things that eventually it proved itself quite capable of doing. Mm. Um, the second part of the question relates to, and I think that's, that's, that's it, really. It's not much more complicated than that. But a lot of people get Churchill wrong and they just think that he hated India and you know, he was a racist and you know, he did everything he could to preserve British power. It, it's, that's, a, that's a real travesty of uh, an assessment of Churchill's role uh, in the empire. Uh, and actually, Andrew Roberts is really, really good on this particular subject as well. Very calm and um, a careful presentation of Churchill's view of, of India. In terms of British soldiers, most British soldiers whose memoirs I've written or I've talked to had the utmost respect for, uh, mm. for in, most British soldiers had the, most, had the utmost respect for Indian soldiers, particularly if they fought for them or fought with them and alongside them. And of course, in most uh, units, Indian uh, divisions, brigades, there were British officers, there were British artillery units, there were British engineers. There was a mixture in the formations of British and Indian formations. And the utmost harmony on the whole uh, existed between Africans, I need to add, add Africans as well, Indians and, and Brits. Um, they all recognised in 44 and 45 that they were fighting this uh, long campaign together. And there were I have never come across an instance of racism or of Indians not being allowed into British messes in the campaigning area in Assam and Burma. That just did not happen. You know, it was a remarkably harmonious army, the 14th Army. And it's one of the things that the Burma Star Association, the years um, since, prided itself on, on saying and doing. And it's absolutely right. It was a very harmonious army of lots and lots of different races and creeds and people of different backgrounds and religions coming together to fight in, this, in, a, in, a, in a common cause. And that's one of the great triumphs of the 14th Army. One of Slim's great triumphs was welding this mass of disparate individuals together to fight a, a single cause. But I, I, it's the idea that there might have been racial clashes or racial disharmony or anything like that, yeah. I have never seen any evidence. And I have been at this for 35 years. I've never seen any evidence whatsoever of um, of anything like that. So going back to Churchill then, and potentially dodgy attitudes, question here that, Breathing. that, that Kyle frankly was just too scared to ask. Sharp intake of breath in advance. <laughs> so Kyle, Kyle is on standby by the phone line waiting for the, uh, waiting for the inevitable complaints. But here goes. I'm going to come out with it. Yeah, let's go. Right. Bengal famine. Churchill or not? Oh, oh gosh! No, it, it, it's also very simple. I'm afraid the Bengal Churchill uh, famine was not Churchill's fault. Now, the Bengal famine was a disaster for Bengal, a disaster for India. But you know, I have a, a, a shelf of books on the Bengal famine, and it's very, very straightforward. Well, actually, it's not straightforward. It's quite complicated, but it was not Churchill's fault. The first thing we need to realise is that India, uh, being an agrarian economy, had long suffered from famines and actually the famine commission had been set up many many decades before to identify the causes of famine and and alleviate them and on the whole they've done a very very good job in 1942-43 however a an unfortunate confluence of events came together not least of all the uh, invasion of the, the far east by the japanese which took at a stroke uh, burmese rice from the market and it also stopped, um, you know, cl closed the seas to shipping. A lot of Burmese rice had, uh, in the pre-war years, been shipped into India, and that um, that was no longer available. But there was also a lot of bad practice in India uh, in terms of um, sort of rampant capitalism, hoarding grain to get the, and and rice to get the best prices, um, such that you know individual farmers and, and, and people in, in rural communities who lived basically hand-to-mouth when the, 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 the drought struck that year were unable to buy the rice mm. at a price they could afford. 
it didn't take long, actually, for the British Empire, the British government to divert ships of, uh, of wheat from Australia to, to Bengal to help alleviate the famine. That took a little bit of time. But in the big scheme of things, it wasn't it wasn't a long time. It, there is no evidence to suggest that anyone sat back and said, we don't like Indians, yeah. we're going to let them die. That, that's just a a far left trope that has no evidence whatsoever. I mean, we can all regret the mm. famine and we do regret the famine, but it does need to be viewed through calm and non-prejudicial eyes. And the whole idea that Churchill, because he hated Indians, was quite happy for them all to die is, is, a, is a complete nonsense. It's a historical fraud and it's just not true. Thank you. How are organisations today, such as the Burma Star Association, assuming that they are, uh, working to get rid of these myths? Well, the truth is they aren't, actually. And it's not the Burma Star Association's fault. Burma Star Association has now morphed into a memorial fund and I have the utmost respect for it. And I like what they do and I support them. But actually, there aren't many people out there uh, changing the narrative in terms of the role of India and of Africa in the war. It's largely become a task of historians like myself and um, and a few others who are banging the drum. And I tend to go out to India every year when I can, pre-COVID and so on, and um, and give presentations and lectures to Indian organisations. And I think, you know, one of the great problems is this terrible prejudice in India, this extreme Hindu prejudice against colonial Britain, who which regards Britain as you know being the colonial master and therefore bad. And anything that happened before 1947 was colonial rather than Indian. <clears throat> there is a year zero attitude amongst many um, Indians. That is changing, actually. I've noticed in the last few years, there are a lot of fabulous Indian historians who are, um, who are countering that narrative and are very happy to put their heads above the parapet and, and claim the war for India, which is, uh, which is, um, something that they really need to do. And there's some very, very good books by Indian Professor Srinath Raghavan has written a brilliant, brilliant book, uh, India's War. And and there are a number of others in India who um, who are who are ploughing this lonely furrow. Um, K.S. Nair has written a brilliant book on the Indian Air Force. I mean, a really f- profoundly important book on the Indian Air Force, which charts its origins and its development and, the, and, and, and shows just how remarkable the Indian Air Force became in 1944-45. Uh, in only a few short years, it had effectively a squadron in 1939 and it produced multiple strike squadrons in 1945, uh, far, far more aircraft than the Japanese were able to deploy in, uh, in Burma, for instance. But it's a matter of, um, just plodding on, I think. It's a matter of writing more books and it's a little bit like that whole battle that's been going on for the last 15 or 20 years in, in First World War studies to demonstrate that actually the First World War for the British Army was not just the first day of the Battle of the Somme. It wasn't just the 1st of July 1916. Yeah. By 1918, the British Army had become a ph- phenomenal fighting force and it defeated the Germans, uh, hands down, in the Hundred Days Battle um, between August and November 19, uh, 1918. That whole argument about rethinking and repositioning our views uh, about what actually happened apropos the myths that are usually very, very simple to absorb, but in the long term are actually wrong or ahistorical. It's it's going to be a battle like that. But I'm quite happy. I can't help but feel that we're like a market leader in dispelling myths now. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Oh, well, thank you very much, Rob. Thank you. Thanks a lot, because that was a really strong insight into into yet one more overlooked aspect of probably the overlooked theatre of war in the Second World War. I will not use the term forgotten. <laughs> it's it's not forgotten. But you're right, it is overlooked. In the, in the grand scheme of things, when people think about the Second World War, they think usually about Europe. And I'll just put a plug in here. It's not just about the Indian Army fighting the Japanese. One of the things that we have really have forgotten is the role of China and the Chinese Army, the Cantonese Army or the Kuomintang Army under Chiang Kai-shek, holding down the Japanese in, in, in China. That's another area of rage and I, I need to recommend that you bring on someone like Professor Rana Mehta to talk about this because you know by the time we started fighting the Japanese in 1941 the Japanese had the Chinese have been fighting them for 10 years and um and the China the Japanese actually were, were exhausted by that I, am I right in understanding I heard this somewhere I couldn't quote you my source 
Uh, but am I right in understanding that when the Japanese attacked Manchuria, that the atrocities committed were that harsh that Adolf Hitler stepped in as a mediator? Well, I haven't heard that, but the atrocities were appalling. And um, they're, they're, that's another subject um, for discussion. Why was it that the Japanese army was so incredibly racist towards uh, its subject races, particularly the Chinese and the Koreans? And then, of course, when it got to them in, in um, 10 years later, the Indians and Tamil workers in Burma and the Burmese yeah. themselves, very, very large numbers of, I mean, another issue of rage is many, many more Tamils died on the Burma railway than um, British and Australian prisoners of war. That doesn't, that doesn't make it acceptable, but the reality is we've forgotten all the indigenous people who were killed by the Japanese. If you'd like to know more about Rob's work, then you can start, first of all, by purchasing the excellent book, War of Empires. And uh, we will be posting that up in the History Rage bookshop, along with the rest of your back catalogue, Rob. Thank you very and much. You and you can see him speak at many historical events and museums throughout the year. And you can follow him on Twitter at Robert underscore Lyman. Uh, and I'm sure he'll share a great many more opinions and facts with you all. So thank you very much, Rob, for coming on. Thank That's you. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much for indulging me tonight. You're very welcome. <laughs> Thanks, Kyle. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. You can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Bavel. And I'm at Kyle G History. And if you've enjoyed our work, then please subscribe to us on Patreon as your £5 per month will get you early episodes and the coveted History Rage mug. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash History Rage. But until next week, thanks a lot for listening. Stay angry. and Bye bye. Bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.